This is episode number 134 of Patrick Jones Baseball, and on this episode we have Ryan Johansson. Um, Ryan spent this past year um, and is actually currently coaching for the Chicago White Sox and their organization. He has his own training facility, Johansson Baseball. Um, Ryan um, has been on the show before and just wanted to kind of uh, catch up with him a little bit, see what he's been up to, see um, you know how his uh, experience was coaching professional baseball, what he learned, um, you know, and just some of the different uh, tools and techniques he's kind of up to. Um, so this is an awesome episode. Ryan's a great, great guy. Like I said, he's been on the podcast before, so um, and I, I received some really good feedback after he was on um, the first time, so... I uh, wanted to make sure to have him on again. Um, I apologize for not having an episode last week. Uh, that was the very first week that I have missed uh, since 2000, uh, since September of 2017. So I was traveling. I had a few interviews. Um, I'll be able to share some um, pretty exciting news with all of you guys over the next, probably in the next uh, week or two, on uh, kind of like where I'll be for uh, this upcoming year. Um, but again, so appreciate you guys still hanging with me, even though I missed last week. And um, again, going to be back, going to be back on every week um, from here on out. So without further ado, here is Ryan Johansson. All right, we are now live with uh, Ryan Johansson of Johansson Baseball, and he's also um, a member of the Chicago White Sox. Uh, Ryan, thanks for coming on today, man. Absolutely, Patrick. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to uh, do round two with you, man. First I know, one, uh, man, I off. know. Well, lots changed, man, since then. You, uh, you're you with the Chicago White Sox now, so take us through how, like, how did all this happen? Yeah, um, I think I think the last time I was just getting started, right? Yeah, you were you know, just getting started. Fourth place from Ohio, and uh, so yeah, we were just getting started with the team. Um, it's you know, it kind of it's kind of been a whirlwind of year. You know, learned a lot, um, got to meet a lot of great people, a lot of really really good humans, um, a lot of really good baseball guys. Learned a lot about the on field stuff. You know, got to ride all the buses, know what it's like to go through the minor league grind, which um, you know I'd never done before. So. You know, a ton of respect for, for guys who do it year in and year out. Um, and for the players, you know, I know it's kind of a point of contention a lot of times is, you know, that they don't really make a lot and they kind of go through all this, you know, hardship and, you know, the food's not great and this other stuff. So kind of experiencing, you know, kind of firsthand the, the both sides of the story. And um, it's, it's been good. It's been good. What, like, what surprised you about being a coach in professional baseball? What surprised me? Oh man! Um, I'm sure this question could go in a bunch of different ways. Um, it can. <laughs> let's let's stick to maybe just the, just the baseball part for now. <laughs> yeah. So the biggest surprise, really, you know, um, was the the biggest surprise was probably the way um, that we go about our daily our daily work. Um, in terms of like early work and on-field BP and, and things like that, um, obviously running a facility and, and kind of being in what some uh, refer to as a dungeon versus the real world uh, <laughs> in some instances, um, you know, was was a little bit different. Like the amount of routine, you know, you, you've got very similar routines for 140 games and then, um, you know, having a feel on, on days when it's 110 degrees out and humid 
but they got to play at seven, you know, kind of toning it back. And, um, and also like how empathetic, like the coaches are, like you kind of hear, you know, these stories and you see the movies and all of these minor league coaches that are kind of like, you know, hard asses and the amount of empathy that, you know, everybody in our organization shows our players, um, you know, in the relationships that are, that are built and, you know, it's unbelievable. Um, and, and players feel the same way. I mean, you're with everybody, you're with your coaching staff and you're with your other, other, you know, players and, you know, for 140 games, you know, hundred, you know, 158 days in a row or 148 days in a row, whatever, you know, breaks out to be. And, um, you know, it's, you're in most quarters, you know, so, um, you know, it's just that, that was, that was really cool. You know, how we went about kind of our daily work and that kind of how we grew and built relationships with people, um, was, was really cool. So how do you, in terms of like going about your, the daily work, is it every player understands, um, it's kind of like has an individualized plan of like what they need to do that day or like how, how do you go about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think in the past it's, it's kind of been up to the player, um, in terms of like, you know, what they want to work on. And, and then obviously, you know, the hitting coach, um, you know, we had Cole Armstrong this year. He was a phenomenal guy and phenomenal human being a really good hitting coach. Um, and he was really, really good at kind of connecting, you know, looking at the video with guys, kind of knowing when to show them video, when not to show them video, what video to show them, um, and kind of, you know, how to prepare for the day in terms of what that guy was going to throw that night. So, um, you know, if we were going to do a, a kind of flip variation, whether it's angled flips, um, you know, he kind of got, he, he kind of like plows a little bit once we got him out and, uh, you know, using some different bats and things like that, that I kind of brought to the table too. So, um, yeah, definitely trying to customize programs for players as much as we could and, um, letting the player like kind of have the freedom of taking control over their career. Like there were some days that like the cages were optional and some guys would come out and some guys wouldn't. And, um, that was kind of by design. Right. And if the guy needed a kind of a mental break or, um, need to focus on something else or visualize or whatever it is. Um, or, you know, if they maybe weren't in the same lineup and they just kind of needed a day, like that, that was kind of how we went about it. One of the interesting, or one, I wouldn't say, I mean, well, of course this is interesting, but one of the things that I'm starting to look more and more into is to, is how to coach and develop swing decisions. Um, you know, how, is there any ways that you've thought of or that you maybe implemented this, this past season on for ways that players can, um, you know, help when I know, be able to recognize different pitches, know when to swing, not to swing, that sort of a thing. Yeah. So on that particular note, I'm going to kind of, you know, pull the, pull the facility card, um, and kind of you know, talk about what we do in our facility. So, um, we, we utilize, uh, the synaptic sensor station. Um, so we're basically, you know, when I first bought it, they said, Hey, what, what kind of eye doctor are you? You know, I was like, Oh, I'm not a doctor. Like I'm a baseball coach. And I go, like, oh, typically like this is, you know, purse for eye doctors and, um, there's hand eye coordination and there's reaction time and there's perception and there's all these, you know, variety of different things. And, you know, they've got, you know, years and years and years of data, you know, built by Nike before you know, it kind of became Synaptic, um, you know, to kind of you know, compare people to. And, and so that's been really interesting to kind of dive into, but also the correlations with the program we call, uh, or that's called U-Hit. Um, you know, we've done, we've seen massive correlations uh, between batting average and their U-Hit scores and, and things like that. So um, I think there's definitely something there. And, and recently we've done tests kind of compared to uh, Synaptic and U-Hit there um and we're working on some research projects right now uh, utilizing our birth force plates and some catalyst software the 4d motion sensors 
um, as well as some of those vision reaction times, how we're transferring force, when we're transferring it, and, and kind of using cameras to figure out when those when those are happening. So um, that's kind of I don't know if that answers your question, um, but essentially we're trying to train to make decisions early as well as transfer our weight on time, buy time with our front leg when we need to, um, but also, um, you know, have a very quick transition, um, you know, when we need to as well. Speaking of the, you just mentioned Burtek force plate, um, 3D motion capture, we'll get into that in a little bit later, but I've seen body track, which measures more so more or less foot pressure, but it can't really, I don't, I believe, I don't, anyway, I can't determine whether it's horizontal force or the players uh, producing vertical force, like whatever type of force they're producing. I believe that's the biggest difference between like a Burtek force plate and body track. Um, is that true? And second part to that question is why is this so valuable? Um, yeah, absolutely. So I don't know in terms of, um, I was saying absolutely to the, the, the being able portion. Um, I don't know enough about body track to kind of speak on the differences between them, but what we can do with Burtek is we definitely can, can look at different vectors, right? Um, so we typically look at, um, you know, how much force we're able to hold in our heels. We make our forward move. That's kind of like what staying back is to me. So even though on video, it might look like we're kind of going forward or, you know, transitioning into our front leg. Um, I want to know how much pressure we're actually still maintaining in the ground, uh, how we're doing it. Uh, so um, being able to kind of weight back and have that adjustability um, by keeping weight in kind of our rear heel um, for as long as possible is, is, is pretty important. Um, you know, guys who maybe dive out in front and kind of lose that pressure um, and get a ton of weight into their front leg, you know, they might be able to maybe produce a, a little bit more force into the baseball, but the adjustability factor, um, you know, just isn't there. So in a perfect world, you know, we want both. We want to be able to hold weight into our back heel and then transfer into our front heel very quickly. Um, and we can kind of see some things on the x-axis as well. So x-axis basically being, you know, if we are making a forward move, how we're pushing back against the plate, um, you know, to, to push or back against the ground, you know, to um, propel ourselves forward. And then also, you know, as we stop ourselves, what, you know, prevents us from lunging, things like that, how much pressure and how, what percent of our body weight, you know, keeps us from lunging. Um, and then, you know, the, uh, another vector is torque. So how much torque we're actually creating, if we grabbing the ground, turning it. Um, and each guy, you know, each is going to be different on what vector is kind of important to them. And, and some guys kind of, um, you know, can utilize vectors differently based on their, their movement screens. Um, you know, so I think it's super important to know how we use the ground. And, you know, we have, we have a guy we looked at the other day that's got super, super mobile hips. Um, so we're trying to kind of maybe close him off a little bit um, to maybe kind of, you know, take the slack out of that so we can kind of load. Um, I think, you know, he's kind of maybe too close of where he's at right now, but um trying to find that happy medium of how can we take the slack out of his hips. Um, but his torque numbers, you know, are probably pretty low. And so if you are closed off, like we want to see those torque numbers, maybe jump a little bit and be a little bit higher. So um, that's something where you kind of customize to the player, how you're coaching the force plate, not just using it and saying, like, Hey, I've got this cool technology, like come stand on it, you know, type thing. So um, 
I don't know if that answers your question. It probably maybe goes into um, maybe a little bit too much detail or not enough. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, that was that was good. I mean, I, I when I was I had Ian Ian Happ on a few weeks ago, and he talked about when he was on force plates, uh, his left hand swing, he created a more vertical force. Um, so I, I guess my next question would be: Is is it just based off of like how do you determine what force is optimal for that player? Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think it depends on on what they're what they're demonstrating, right? So, if they're demonstrating, you know, a vector that's much higher than the rest, like I think you want to capitalize on it. Um, if they're demonstrating, you know, not really a lot of force anywhere, um, you want to kind of figure out why, kind of look at their movement assessment. So, um, sometimes I think it's it's how they how flexible they are, not necessarily flexible, how mobile they are, um, in certain parts of their body, um, you know, and kind of what bucket they they kind of fit into, but. Also, just, you know, I think the KVS graphs and or 4D motion graphs in our case kind of, you know, play a role. You know, is it a guy who's creating, um, you know, force, um, you know, by kind of spreading out all the deceleration numbers or a guy who's, you know, maybe got a little bit tighter move, um, you know, through there. So, um, but I really think like diving into, you know, what the player does and, and kind of maximizing on what he does well um, and kind of focusing on what he does well and then kind of maybe trying to build that up and, collating it with the variety of different data um, is kind of how you're going to figure that out. So you just brought up 4D and KVEST. Um, what do you, which one do you like better? <laughs> um, I like them both for different reasons. Um, That's my diplomatic answer uh, as we're recording. Very politically um, correct answer. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So I like KVEST uh, because I think it's really easy to um, first is on a computer, right? So, um, create a PDF file, um, kind of using, you know, um, you know, a mouse and things that and maybe that's just showing my age, which I'm not really not that old, but, um, you know, I, I really, <laughs> I kind of, I like the computer feel over like a tablet feel. Um, so, you know, maybe that's, uh, <laughs> my personal, um, bias, but I like the fact that it's on a computer. I like the fact that it has, you know, really clean, um, reports. I like the fact that I think the auto captures maybe a little bit better, um, you know, on that aspect, um, the setup itself. I mean, I think they both have their, their issues in terms of crashing and starting up again. Um, but I don't think either one is better than the other in that category. They both, you know, are obviously motion capture, um, thing. So if something's going wrong, you have to kind of restart everything, get it going again. Um, I think the notch sensors are a little bit less invasive and in a lot of cases they're smaller. Um, and I think they, um, are more versatile. So I think you can put them different places. And the one thing I really, really like about 4d is is you're capturing for the way we use is we capture time and space. So we can capture, um, anything we can do a softball pitch motion. We can do a jump. We can do, you know, um, a med ball throw that's both sides, right? So we can throw a med ball into a wall to the left and then give, you know, a med ball throw it into a wall to the right and capture the whole thing and see how they move in one exact, in one graph, um, the left side and the right side. So, um, you know, with KVS, you know, you kind of have to have the, the swing and putting to kind of get the line and kind of presets things and talks to your first move and your heel strike. And it's great. And that's really easy to read for, you know, people who, um, you know, just want to see that information, but I think 40 is a lot more versatile, um, in that aspect. Um, the only, you know, the biggest issue that's on the iPad, and, um, you know, sharing information isn't always the easiest, but, um, then again, it's, it's good on all Apple products. Um, so, 
if I have, I'm using it on my iPad, I can also pull up the app on my phone and I can be going through reports, you know, in Arizona, you know, for our facility back home, um, you know, on my phone at a coffee shop. Like it's, so it's pretty cool in that aspect too. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is very interesting. And it's, it's interesting because for me anyway, I, it, it really, I get, once you have like that information, you can kind of combine it with their movement assessment like that's when you can really start like putting the, some of the pieces together. What do you like to do? Like, do you have a certain movement assessment that like you kind of created on your own, or like what do you do from like a movement standpoint? Um, I got to give Justin Stone a lot of credit on my knowledge and the movement assessment stuff. I mean, he's been really um, good on not only um, creating content but also you know getting us into the facility, showing us some things. Um, obviously, you know, I'm TPI certified, so there's that aspect to it. Um, you know, but I think basically once you kind of understand rotational movement and what you're looking for, I think, you know, I think people should create their own assessments just because it needs to match what makes sense for your facility and what makes sense kind of in your mind in terms of like how you're going to match things together. It doesn't have to be the same as everybody else's. So we've got a couple things, you know, in there. Um, I do have guys, you know, bear, uh, guys and girls kind of bear crawl and we kind of look at a, a couple different things there, which I, I haven't seen um, in, move, in other movement assessments. I also think, you know, the diligence of it, you know, plays a role too. So if you're looking for something that's really, really fast, like, you know, you can create something that's maybe three to five minutes that, um, you know, test for things one time, you know, I like to verify things at least two times. And so we'll have a variety of different tests that, um, verify what we see in kind of the baseline tests, um, and the bear crawls, you know, a compound movement, um, that not only looks at, you know, public control, it looks at, you know, how you're able to retract your scap stability, um, in a variety of different ways. Whereas, you know, we also look at just public tilt in general. We look at, um, you know, your, uh, external rotation in general. We look at your lat length in general, you know, so there's a lot of different things that kind of, you know, play a role there. Um, and I think just kind of mashing it all together. And, and what we find in our movement assessments is not the lengths are that are kind of make people unique. I mean, I think most people have kind of similar ailments, you know, to, to a degree, um, the combination of the ailments is really what makes people unique. Um, and so I think that's kind of how you can kind of piece together, you know, what's a good program for a person and really understanding, you know, the physiology of their body. Yeah. I see that your, your facility, you guys are going out to different uh, colleges. I saw you were at Iowa state. Um, anything particular that kind of uh, stands out, uh, from just being, uh, just something different from like seeing from pro guys to college guys. Yeah. Um, so Iowa state was interesting because that was softball. So Iowa state doesn't have a baseball team, uh, you know, being in the big 12, um, you know, with Oklahoma and, and some of the other big schools, you know, um, you know, they're, they've got, they're able to kind of recruit some, some higher level girls. And, um, it was kind of fun to, to be there and they've got great facilities and great staff there. Um, you know, people who are kind of looking for softball and, for people who are willing to learn in mean, Iowa State, they brought in Austin Wasserman for their throwing. Um, they brought in, you know, a lot of other people who, I mean, they're really they're really trying to trying to do things in, in, in their development to help their girls, you know, out and, and kind of compete and, um, and do some things. So great staff up there had a blast. Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest with you though, like whether it's, you know, Judson University that came into our facility, you know, whether it's like Forest Softball came to our facility, whether it's Kishwaukee Community College Baseball or, you know, whether it's Chicago White Sox, like, you know, you, you see the combination, I think, just change um, 
some things that guys are good at. And then obviously like, you know, the mass aspect of it, um, depending on age and where you're at and, um, what environment you're in and, and where you're seeing the pro guys, are you seeing the really young guys or are you seeing the guys who, you know, are maybe in double A and triple A and you know, what the mass looks like. Um, and then the age plays a factor too, I think, um, you know, obviously more mature, you know, men, you know, or have kind of their grown man strength, you know, for lack of a better term, um, you know, which kind of helps them sometimes move better and, and sometimes it helps them move better. And I think just kind of, I don't really think there's any bucket of category. You can say, Hey, there's the difference between this, this, and this, um, until you start getting into the youth, um, the youth, I mean, almost nobody in the youth has scapular strength. Um, everybody's, you know, really unstable, obviously, um, from there. So, um, but I don't think you, know, you see these big giant gaps, um, you know, from college to college to pro, I think it's more, that's more of where the, some of that cognitive stuff really comes into play and confidence and their ability to shift, you know, their anxiety, um, and shift their attention to, to other things. How do you help a player with that, with that last part? Ooh, um, well, and at our facility, I mean, we try to create, uh, as much anxiety as possible. We use strobe glasses. We've got the quad strobes. We use high field machines, double barrel, like people have seen on social media and things like that. Um, where one's a curveball or slider and one's, you know, high velo fastball. We'll do high velo fastballs from both sides. You just don't know if it's going to run in on your hand or if it's going to kind of cut away from you. So, um, there's a variety of different, you know, ways to kind of do that. And then just kind of coaching them through the breathing aspect, like just letting them know, like, Hey, like this isn't necessarily like, so you go out here and like feel good and like have success. This is like for you to just actually not be scared of, of this environment. Right. Um, and so teaching them to kind of breathe through that and, um, you know, work through it too, like find, you know, have the ability to find barrel and, um, you know, when they do it one time and then teaching them like, look like this is this is tougher than anything you're ever going to see in a game and you just fouled off 13 in a row like you realize it's like an okay at bat like everyone's like like dude this is crazy da, da, da. like you, you haven't struck out yet you're not out yet and they're like oh man i'm not and then they're like yeah, okay cool and then like teaching them about quality at bats and how they can kind of focus on their process and um things like that and you take the glasses off and you kind of go maybe go to one machine or maybe slow it down to something more realistic for what they're going to see um, and all of a sudden it's like bang, bang, bang. And then now they're really confident. Right. And so I'm um, trying to, trying to create more anxiety than they're, than they're going to have and kind of coaching them through like that breathing process. I mean, it's just like anything else. They say like, you know, whatever, whatever phobia you have, you know, you're going to get over it better if you're able to kind of expose yourself to it. Right. And so, um, I, I personally don't, don't have like, I'm not like afraid of like spiders or anything. So like that doesn't like always resonate with me, but it's just something I've heard. Um, that's how we do it at our place is just give them opportunities to be anxious and you know, coach them through calming down. And, you know, some guys, some guys, they don't have it. Like sometimes you put glasses on a guy and they're like, whatever coach, like, I don't care. And sometimes you put glasses on a guy and they're like, Oh my God, Oh my God. Like these are strobing. Like, the glasses are dark. Like I can't see. And then they like the, like before you even put the ball on, they're like jumping out of the box. And so, um, you know, it's, there's, there's, there's a gap of how well people are kind of able to deal with that stuff. Yeah. It's one of the interesting things is, um, you know, I'm reading, I'm reading this book right now, um, called peak and I don't know if you've read it before either, but, um, it, it kind of talks about, it, it gives all the, some examples of how, you know, people acquire knowledge and skills and it, it gives some pretty interesting examples. Like for one, um, 
you know, talking a little bit about, you know, posterior, posterior hippocampus and, you know, the, the part of your brain that deals with memory. And one of the examples that they gave was they had this, um, they picked a random college student and they gave the, they gave him, um, uh, they wanted to see how many numbers he could uh, remember and say in a row. And I think the, his uh, was like eight. So the first day he could, you know, they would say eight numbers. And then he was able, that was the highest he could get to where he could, you know, remember all eight and say them back. Now he did this um, for two years, like four to five days a week he did this. And it was deliberate practice where... They never the guy who administrated this to him like they never gave him too much at a time right so if he started to fail they'd pull back a little bit and then once he started to succeed they'd push him but they wouldn't push him too much so in two years he was able to recite 82 numbers back to that administrator so they li- literally think of it like this like me saying to you Ryan like listing you 82 numbers. And you having to retain 82 different numbers and being able to recite all those back. And I just thought it, like, there's a bunch of different examples like in the book. That's just one of them. But it, it just it, it, it makes me like kind of realize like, A, we can push ourselves a lot further than we think. B, if we focus, if we practice and we have deliberate practice and we have intent with, you know, what we're doing, it's a complete game changer. And three is it's important to kind of know what we're like where our peak is at that moment. And so to not give us a player, you know, not put a 13 year old in facing 95, like people, people think over time, like just facing better, better, you know, just playing more and more games, you're going to get more and more reps. But if you're not consciously working on things, like you're actually, you're not really getting better. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And and kind of knowing how to scale, um, how to scale your, your methods and your program. You know, you mentioned like they start to fail too much, you know, that's and their confidence starts to go down because they feel like they can't do anything. Like maybe that player's not ready for that. And, um, you know, I think it's just having some feel and, and having empathy, like kind of like I talked about earlier, like the empathetic part of, of this whole thing is, is we're developing humans. You know, we, we look at it as like, we're developing maybe like athletes and like these tough guys or, you know, these like really competitive beings. And in the day, like, yeah, hopefully that's the case, but, they're also just humans and really competitive guys like are going to grow up to be husbands and fathers. And um, like they need to have empathy too. Like they can't just be like on the best, like and go off this like cold, like, you know, like uh, coldness to the world because they're just like these tough guys. Like, no, like they've got to have empathy and they've got to understand themselves and they've got to be self-aware. And, you know, they've, they've got to know when to ask for help and they've got to know when to speed up and slow down. And, um, I think, you know, baseball is one of the best sports, you know, to kind of teach some of that stuff and, and have opportunities to, but, you know, data guys in general, just be kind of a bad rap from the old school guys because we're just numbers dudes. And it's like, that's not the case, like not at all. And then you get the swing design guys, you get the bad rap from the external cue guys. Cause we have these kind of like ideas of how the mechanics should work. And they're like, Oh no, you don't need mechanics. Like just try to hit it a million miles. And this whole, this whole thing like fits in the middle, like swing design guys, like, can use external cues to, to coach swing mechanics. And, um, you know, you don't, you can have empathy and, and coach really competitive, really strong willed, you know, human beings that are self-aware and have empathy towards others. And, and, and I think everything's just a balance and everyone just wants to, you know, push their way and their niche and their thing. And it's like, it all kind of fits together. Yeah. The truth is usually in the middle. It's not one way or another, like you just said. 
Yeah, well, I mean, go, go ahead. ahead. What were you gonna say? Yeah, I was just gonna say, you know, it's it's just some, one of those things where you know, right now we're in an age of of social media that everyone just kind of wants to argue, and I know it's kind of kind of a popular topic and I think everybody kind of agrees on the same thing so you know maybe it's low-hanging fruit to get people to to agree with you to say hey yeah we all just argue on social media but um you know that's we're all meeting in the middle um but I think it's just like it's it's almost like too true like that's why it's a cliche like it's become a cliche for a reason and I think we can all do a better job of you know even being empathetic to the guys who like yell at us on, on twitter.com or whatever it is you know just um like how you react how you respond and how you hold yourself and carry yourself and um, you know, I think it's just a testament to, you know, professionalism and, and things like that. I would say that's the other thing like I really learned this year is, you know, just professionalism in general, like even from like just dressing off the street and, you know, cause I came from basically just being in like training clothes every day. And so, um, you know, when you start to represent an organization and you represent other people, you, you kind of have to do things a little bit differently. And, um, you know, I think that that matters on social media as well. Awesome, Ryan. Won't take any more of your time, man. Or again, really appreciate you uh, you coming on. And uh, again, man, just appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.